Welcome to the Nurse Wellness Podcast, empowering nurses to manage stressors so they can intentionally reconnect with their purpose, optimize their wellness, and ultimately show up in the world the way they want to be seen. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Wendy Garvin-Mayo, your stress solution strategist. In this podcast, you'll receive actionable stress management tips, insightful interviews, and strategies that focus on inspiring you to be your best, do your best, and give your best. With that, let's get started. Hi, Dr. J. Welcome to the Nurse Wellness Podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. I've been waiting so long to have this conversation. Um, Why don't we start by you telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Um, Hi, everyone. Um, I'm so glad to be here, Wendy. Thank you so much for the invitation. Um, So my name is Dr. Janet Williams. Um, I am a nurse midwife, board certified nurse midwife. I work in the Bronx. in New York City. And I care for women from puberty all the way throughout their lives. And uh, I've been a midwife for 18 years now. And uh, I love what I do. I I love the women that I care for. Um, I also hold an appointment at Columbia University. um, And I'm a clinical instructor for midwifery, graduate midwifery students. And um, We also have at my hospital medical students and PA students, physician assistant students. So the wonderful thing I love about what I get to do is that I'm able to model for them how to deliver respectful care. And I'm usually with them, the midwives are with them during their first birth experiences. So they get to see what physiologic birth should look like, you know, without all of the bells and whistles. They see the bells and whistles sometimes, but they get to see um, natural normal birth also. That's amazing. So you get to go to work and really bring life into the world. X, yes, I, I get to do that all the time. It's wonderful. If I'm also the CEO of um, Transitions Women's Health uh, Consulting. And um, that kind of stemmed out of my um, quest to try to improve um, the maternal mortality rate by um, educating providers about giving culturally competent, respectful care and of educating them about um, implicit bias and how that affects the care that we give to the women we serve. Yes, and I wanna unpack that throughout our discussion here, but what got you involved in um, maternal health? Like, did you go straight into that? You know, in nursing school, I know everybody wants to do like labor and delivery. Like, like, (laughs) is that you back then or? You know what? It's a combination of so many different life experiences. I I went into midwifery halfway through my career. Um, uh, there were so many things that led me to midwifery, starting with the identification of the importance of holistic nursing care. And that was even prior to me starting nursing school. Um, my first hospital experience was when I had my son and it surrounded the pregnancy and the prenatal care around, the, uh, around that time. The uh, care, to say the least, was lacking at the time. I'm sure that all the boxes in my chart were checked off. Um, You know, I was asked, did my baby move? I was vitalized. I was weighed. All the things that needed to be done, they measured my stomach. But in the end, it felt like I was on a conveyor belt. And I never felt like I connected with anyone at that hospital, you know, when I was doing my prenatal care. Um, then after, when I delivered him, I was given an injection on the delivery table. Nobody said, you're getting this 
injection for any specific reason. I just kind of got pricked and nobody really explained it at the time. And what I found out when I was ready to leave the hospital was that they had given me uh, medication to dry up my milk. And it was never a conversation about, did I want to breastfeed? There was never any education about breastfeeding or anything like that. And so I don't even remember the mention of that during the whole time. And so um, there was no support at the time. They didn't let people in the delivery room. They didn't let people be with you in labor. So you labored and birthed alone. And there had to be a better way. I knew that even back then. Um, about three years later, my dad um, and my entire family, I'll say, were cared for by nurses that in an ICU when my dad was dying. And that transformed my life, I think. And it made me understand what respectful, supportive care can look like and how much support means, even in the gravest of situations. Um, and I watched them basically midwife my family through my father's death. And that was amazing to me because that was the other end of life. Um, I went to nursing school. He died in Ju July. I was already accepted in a nursing school when he died. So that was a big impact on my life. And um, I became a nurse after I finished uh, nursing school and worked in a variety of settings. You couldn't get right into labor and delivery at the time. It was very difficult. But I worked in uh, ICU, med surge. Um, I did home care. But every experience that I had prepared me, um, you know, of, um, prepared me to take care of women and families. And um, I learned so much um, you know, in the, all of those different areas. And finally I got into labor and delivery and it was at the same hospital I had delivered. Are you feeling stressed or overwhelmed in your personal or professional life? If like so many of us, the answer is yes. Register for the free stress solution series to learn how to craft your very own personalized stress blueprint. On March 28th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Secure your spot at www.stresssolutionseries.com. Wow. Yeah, I wow. went back like full circle. And when I got there, it was awesome because I had an awesome mentor and preceptor. And she showed me there at that place where I thought there couldn't be, you know, that kind of care. She showed me how to give families that kind of care, even within an institution that was very rigid. They still were not letting visitors in uh, routinely when I got there, but she showed me how to give respectful care. We used to sneak the fathers in and we would stay over our shift if the woman was ready to deliver so that the next shift wouldn't throw them out, that kind of thing. And um, so that was awesome. And I stayed there for quite a few years. And then I went into home care where I cared for people from pediatrics right through the end of life. And I cared for mothers, pregnant women sometimes who were high risk. And so I got to monitor them at home and that was that was interesting. And um, moms needed like IV therapy for hyperemesis, you know, for vomiting, or they might need um, antibiotics or, you know, monitoring for uh, contractions, like preterm contractions to help prevent them from going into preterm labor or, you know, notifying their physicians that they were contracting too often. Yeah. Um, I find, yeah. So that was, that was really good there too. Yeah. I think you said two things that I want to kind of um, highlight that, uh, which I think it's just amazing. The concept of them midwifing your father to end of life and yeah. you bringing that type of care back to L and D where life starts. I think that is like an amazing uh, it, full it, circle it, moment. I don't know what to it, call it, but it's, it, it's amazing. Yeah. 
I and think it normalizes birth and it normalizes death. And absolutely, just even to this day, it's just I do feel it's full circle. And I think that people come in the world and they're supported coming in, and they should be supported on the way out. Also, I think that's so so important. You know. Yeah, it made me think of um, my son was born on July 10th, mm-hmm. um, and that is the day that my grandmother was born, wow. and that was the day my husband's grandmother died. And I'll tell you the weird story about that is that when he was born, he wasn't breathing. He came back to life. So in my mind, I say that he went to go meet his paternal yes. grandmother yep. and my grandmother gave him life. That oh. just gave me chills, but it just made me you think just, what, what you just said. You just gave me chills too, Wendy. Yeah. 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 That, that's a, yeah. So um, that was a great point. And I, I want to go back because I think you kind of went through this really fast. They took a choice away from you. Oh, absolutely. That injection. Absolutely. They absolutely did. And that's something that is so important. We have to talk to our patients and we have to we have to talk to women and let them know what's available and the benefits and, and the you know for the mom and the baby breastfeeding. You have to share this. Not all not all people are familiar with breastfeeding. They've ne- never seen it, some of them, you know. It's very cultural in certain um populations, but some women have never seen someone breastfeed. So that's a conversation to have. And and telling the mom, you know, these are the benefits for the baby for being breastfed. And these are benefits for you as the mom, you know, and that wasn't done. I think back then that was probably a lot of the care was just given, you know, I'm not saying that people didn't care, but it's the care that I received, I have to say. It, and I was a teenage mom. And I think that might've had another, some bias there that I was young. Maybe I didn't understand or didn't care. I don't know. You know, that might've been part of that also, but um, it, w- it was hard, you know, but I recognized it even back then that I wasn't listened to really, you know, it was just, I was kind of sh- like just propelled through the system and you kind of end up on the outside with a baby in your arms with not much education about how to take care of the baby or yourself, you know, just like somebody just talking kind of at you, but not really ensuring that you understood what, what was being said. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it brings me to the maternal health disparities. Like I would love to get your perspective being an African-American midwife working in the Bronx. Uh, What do you see and what you see and experience? Does that reflect the statistics out there of black women um, dying at higher rates? Um, Absolutely. Opposed to their white counterparts. I would love to get your perspective on that. Absolutely. Um, in the U.S., about 700 women die a year from um, complications of uh, pregnancy, and it could be during the pregnancy, during the birth, or in the period afterwards, which is called postpartum. But unfortunately, 60% of those people that die, it was preventable. Mm. Okay. And then uh, that's for all women. And then on top of that, Black women die at a rate of three to four times uh, as an average three to four times that of their white counterparts. In the Bronx, it can be as high as eight times. It's really a very high rate of um, mortality in the Bronx, you know. um, So I do see that, you know, people come in with more, um, you know, diseases, diabetes, high blood pressure, obesity, you know, you have to look at the 
um, social determinants of health, how they live, you know? There are a lot of apartment buildings in the Bronx. There are a lot of um, environmental factors that can impact. A lot of women have asthma and, you know, that kind of thing. And so that all is going to have something to do with the maternal um, outcomes that we have. And we have a lot of women that come in that are from other countries and they come in and deliver here with very little prenatal care. They come in very far into their pregnancies already. So we do see a much higher rate of um, mortality in our area. So are you saying that it's, you know, the comorbidities and environmental factors that can lead to the, the high mortality rates? It, or... it contributes to it. I'm not saying that's the only thing. Yeah, there yeah. are so many factors that contribute to it. So many. Yeah, because I know there's a campaign of Hear Her. Um, you know, that really talks about um, healthcare providers listening to pregnant women when they complain about things. I know Serena Williams um, is a well-known tennis player who mm-hmm. um, almost died from a pulmonary embolism. Yes, I they know. Were listening to her. That is definitely, that, that Hear Her campaign is through the CDC, the uh, Center of Disease Control. And um, it is designed to increase the awareness of the maternal mortality um, in the, like I said, during pregnancy, during the delivery or afterwards. And about 30% of the women die after the birth of the baby when they're home already. So it's so important that women know the danger signs of that they should report to their providers when to come to the hospital and not to ignore certain signs because that can prevent complications that lead to death, you know? And um, so the Hear Her campaign is, a whole campaign where they have educational materials that providers can give to their clients. Um, We should be talking to our patients, like even prenatally about the signs to look for. When they're in the hospital, they should hear it. But unfortunately, women are in the hospital and things go so fast. After they deliver, they're exhausted. They're only in the hospital one or two days, depending, okay? And so the first day you're trying to teach them, but they're exhausted. So they're really not hearing you. So this is you have to keep repeating these danger signs. You have to give them written material. You have to give them all different ways to remember what you said, because it's very easy for them to go home. And it's just so much happening, you know, from the birth until they're discharged, that it's very easy for them to forget or not hear you. They could be thinking about how they're going to get home or what they need to do when they get home. And they're not really hearing those symptoms and, and signs. Um So one of the things that I did is I wrote a journal for moms because we sent a lot of moms home during COVID with no support at home. You know, their moms and sisters and and grandmothers normally would have gotten on a plane and and come to be with them during um, this postpartum period. But because of COVID, people were kind of stranded and isolated. So, so many new moms went home with no support, you know, so I wrote a journal that has the danger signs in it, because what I found is if we give a mom a instructional sheet that has all of that on it. Many times I'll walk in the room after they're gone and guess where that paper is? It's on the bed. Because they were rushing and they were packing and they the, the form just got left on the bed. So now they're home and they don't have that even that we gave them with the phone number or with the um, in, information. So I wrote a journal and the journal is for them to actually write down their feelings. It tells them about some self-care things so they can help take care of themselves. It tells them when to when to um, reach out. It tells them the danger signs. And it's in a book that they're going to be using because they're going to write down 
you know, some great things. It has affirmations in it and that sort of thing. So they're going to be using this book a lot and it's going to be there. It's something that they're going to be using and the danger signs are in that book. So it's not like they can leave a piece of paper somewhere. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And we'll put the link to that journal in the show notes. Um, okay. I want to back up to something because I know the statistics also said it doesn't matter if women are educated, Black women, they're still at higher risk, you know, educated, uh, well-paid. I know you talked about environmental, um, mm-hmm. you know, factors that can contribute to that. Because I even like for me, I am a Black educated woman. And when I had my son, I uh, had some complications because I wasn't being listened to. And that was one of the reasons why my son was born not breathing. Um, So what role do you think the healthcare providers have in um, really um, the disparities that exist, particularly in Black women in maternal health? We have to listen to our clients. I think there's a lot of bias out there, first of all, that, that we're Black women and there's a bias there. And people don't realize that we're all biased in some ways, but it has to be recognized and dealt with. And the only way we can do that is if we see, we have to do a self-introspection, each of us, and make and see that what biases we have and then overcome them. Okay, it's very, it's very easy to point fingers at people and to say that someone else is biased, but each of us has to do that. And what happens is people are put in boxes as far as, you know, um, how much pain can they tolerate, you know, different things. And so we all know that there are racial things going on as far as some of the education that's done. They, they were um, educating people that, that Black people didn't feel pain the same as other people. There's a lot of things that are going on. But the main thing is that we have to get over this bias. That's one big part of it. Um, and we need to listen to women. And if women feel that they're not being listened to, they have to do something about it and stand up. They have to advocate for themselves and they have to have people around that will advocate for them. And that's very important. And, um, you know, we can't discount when, when women tell us how they're feeling. You know, a lot of times you'll hear somebody say, oh, you're just pregnant. You know, you're having this because you're pregnant. We have to investigate every complaint because you just never know, you know, and if the woman is feeling something, you need to investigate that. You need to do education of what's the normal pregnancy discomforts, but you need to listen. You can't just, you know, chalk everything up to that's normal in pregnancy because there's a lot of things that are not normal in pregnancy. No, absolutely. And I know like in primary care, I'm not sure how it is um, in, you know, the maternal health world, but how much time do you get with your patients for a a visit? Do you get like the 15 minutes or? We get 20 minutes for uh, like a return visit and for a new visit, you get about 40 minutes. So, you know, you have time to talk to them and especially that first visit, you want to really get a good history on them. And, and start the connection because that's the thing. Patients will not tell you things if they don't feel like you're interested or you're connected or that you're respecting them. They're not going to tell you. So it's very important to have that, to get that report and to explain what, what prenatal care is going to look like. You give them kind of a global idea of what the prenatal care is going to be and you know what you can offer them. And so they know when to come to you and they know that they can, you know, share and and trust that you're going to take care of them and help them. And you're partnering. That's what I tell my my patients. I'm here to partner with you. 
Okay, we make plans together. It's not me saying this is what you should do. I should be explaining, okay, this is what's available. These are the tests that you can have. They're available. It's your choice whether you would like to have these tests or not. You know, you have to give the patient, it's her body, it's her pregnancy. You know, you have to tell her what's available and then have that discussion and answer her questions. And in the end, it's her choice. It's her body. And she should never feel like she has, she can't say no or she can't advocate for herself. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point about connecting. That whole connection is important. I think people always say communicate. I think we communicate, we think we communicate, but you, you can't effectively communicate unless you're connected. And I think that whole connection comes with listening. Yes. Um, and I know there are a lot of, um, you know, healthcare providers out there in, in various uh, specialties that you really do have to check your biases and be aware oh. of them so you can work <laughs> on them. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. You do. Yes. Yeah. So what would you tell, uh, you know, women out there who may be listening, who uh, may feel like they're not being listened to or healthcare providers who witness, you know, maternal health disparities or racism in maternal health? What can they do? What what can, you know, a, from a patient's perspective as well from maybe a sideline healthcare provider who's witnessing this happen? Well, the first thing I would tell a patient is that ask your providers when, you, when you're talking to them, if you don't think that they're hearing you or it looks like they're not listening, ask them, what did you hear me say? Can you tell me what I just said? And see if they really are listening or understanding. Sometimes they may be listening, but not quite understanding what you're saying. But if you ask them to feed it back to you, then you'll at least know whether they heard what you said. Um, and even if they didn't get it the first time, if they're interested and they say, well, that's what I thought you said, you said, that's not it. They're gonna, if they are really someone that you're gonna connect with, they're gonna go out of their way to try to make sure that they do understand. Repeat it again, tell me again, um, is this what you mean? And they're gonna do that till you feel that, you know, they're listening. And some things may be a cultural thing that they're not understanding because they have no uh, frame of reference. That may be what the problem is. So that's why representation counts too. When, when patients walk in and they're happy to see you because you know they feel like they can connect to you culturally a little bit, you know that kind of thing. The other thing, it gives the patient a, a chance to clarify what the person said, even if they didn't get it the first time. That's very important. The second thing is I think doulas are so important. That's having an advocate. A doula is someone that is there for you. She does some education. She does some advocacy and support. And that's a wonderful um, person to have on your team, on your birth team. If, you know, you can have your partner. That's that, that doesn't take the place of your partner. That's in addition to your partner or a family member that you would like to have. Um, the other thing is if your provider is not trying to understand who you are or discounts what you're telling them, then I would seek another provider because too many women remain in that setting with a physician or midwife or nurse practitioner or whoever their provider is. And because they're pregnant and they started prenatal care, they kind of just stay there. They never really connect and they're never really happy, but they don't seek other another provider. And that's important. And I would say do it sooner than later in a pregnancy because you want to get to the end and you want to feel comfortable asking for what you need. And you want to ask questions and know you're being heard. So if you don't feel comfortable doing that, then, you know, that could cost you your life if your provider is not listening to you. 
you know, or can exacerbate complications. Because many things, you know, we know that if you, um, if you notify us early, we can prevent the complications. But if you, you know, if you're hesitant, like they're not going to listen or you don't try or they ignore you, that could really uh, cause a complication and even lead to death. So you want to make sure that you do have someone that's listening to you. Um, the other thing is if, if a, for instance, if a woman is saying she's having trouble breathing, it has to be taken seriously and, and investigated. And that's not just in OB. You know, we're talking uh, about maternal care right now. But for example, women die of heart attacks much more often than men do. And why is that? Because when women come to the hospital saying they're having chest pain or, or shortness of breath or palpitations or any of that, they are more often diagnosed with anxiety or panic attack. That's usually the first thing that they say women are having. Before they do anything else, they're going to say, you know, did something upset you? They go that emotional route, you know, whereas when their male counterparts walk in, they go straight, oh, heart attack, they take them right in, do a cardiac cast. So they save their lives much more often than they do women. And that's awful because the timing of treatment makes the difference. You know, after they rule out everything with the woman, then they'll take in and say, maybe let's check the, the labs or let's do a cardiac cath. And then they find out she's been having a heart attack for the last three or four hours. Whereas with the men, they'll go straight to that. So, you know, it's important that providers of care believe and listen and believe what you're telling them, that they have to believe, you know, hear us and believe. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and yeah. what would you say to a healthcare provider who's witnessing, um, you know, racism or disparities, you know, in the workplace, a colleague, because it, it can be hard, it can be difficult, and it can be uncomfortable. I always say you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable when you start talking about racism. Absolutely. You absolutely do. I think the biggest thing is, first of all, training. I think, you know, all the hospitals pretty much are having training and bias, but it's a 45 minute something, you know, you're doing it on the computer. Is someone telling you, you know, a little story and then you're clicking off a few buttons, but that's not really training that that's going to affect you in the long term. That's more that at the end, you get a certificate, it goes in your folder. So when Jayco comes, they can say they did that. Okay. <laughs> that's pretty much what you get. I mean, really, I think there are, there are a lot of courses out there that um, about implicit bias and basically what it should do is really explain with examples and understandable language, what implicit bias is. And then it should challenge the person to do some introspection and see what their biases are. Because it has to start with us, each of us, okay? Because there's a way to change your mind once you find that bias, but you have to be able to identify it and then to kind of recognize that it's there. And you have to have the mindset that you want to change your mind. Bias occurs for the most part unconsciously. It's our brain doing really quick calculations before we even think of it, you know? And years ago, it was more for safety. Like if you saw a lion and you had to run, it was like your brain didn't have to think about that's a lion, um, it's dangerous. It didn't do all of that. It just said lion run and you were able to run. But now that's not the case anymore, you know? But it still happens. It still happens that immediate feeling that you get, that immediate thought that you get, you know, it could be something simple like somebody coming up the stairs of a subway and they're tall and you're on the platform by yourself and it's starting to get dark and you just happen to glance out your eye, a tall man or something, 
It's that fear that comes, that tells you you're in danger. It's that fear. And it's not that you even looked at the person or they did anything. It's just that immediate thought that your brain said, you're in a dangerous situation. You know, yeah. that's the bias there, okay? Um, if you take the time to look that way, you may notice that the person is not threatening at all, didn't even come near you. And if you just, you know, take that extra second to look and to investigate, then you'll realize that that, that bias that you felt wasn't realistic. It wasn't. So yeah. we can do that with our biases also, but you have to just take that extra second after you realize that this is a bias to, to, um, to just investigate or think about it a little bit. And that would help, you know, help you maybe um, not act on that bias. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank yeah. you so much, Janet. Can I take you through a quick rapid fire? Is that okay before we wrap yeah. up? Sure. <laughs> so tell me the first thing that comes to your mind to answer the question or finish the sentence. Wellness means absence of disease and the peace of mind. I know I'm stressed one. Wow. That's a good question. <laughs> well, that's good. You don't get that's, stressed. That's a good thing. That's a very good question. <laughs> we'll come back, back to that, that one. We'll, we'll come back to that one. Okay. <laughs> what do you do for self-care? Self-care. I listen to music. I pray. I meditate. Um, I spend friend, uh, time with friends. My husband. Watch movies. Take a walk. There's a lot of things I do for self-care. It's important. That's yeah. nice. That's nice. And what's one thing you learned about yourself during this pandemic? I learned how strong we are um, as health professionals. I, I learned that mental health and supporting each other emotionally is paramount. Um, it, it was a hard time for, for healthcare workers, and we really really um, got closer and supported our, our co-workers and went over and above um, what we would have normally done. And I think we supported our patients even more during this time because they couldn't have all the visitors that they normally would have had. So I think that it, it, some things were very came very positive out of this, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the last time you had a belly laugh was... Probably yesterday. I laugh pretty much every day. I, I'm a, a pretty positive, happy person. Well, that's and that's you know what, and I, I get that just by your uh, your vibe and your energy. And you couldn't answer the question about stress because you're like, I don't know when I get stressed, <laughs> which is awesome, <laughs> which is great. We need some more positivity in this world. We need more people to to be like you. Um, I, I love it. And before we go, I do wanna um, I want you to just let us know, know a little bit about transitions. Your uh, consulting company. What do you do there and how can people get in contact with you? Okay. So um, Transitions Women's Health um, is a consulting company. And the main, the main thing that I, my mission is to decrease maternal mortality. And I've kind of got into this thing about implicit bias in educating maternal health professionals about it. Uh, what it is, and again, how it affects the care that we give women, because it absolutely does, and that's going to affect the that's going to affect the maternal mortality and morbidity rate. So um, I have a course that I I um, developed. It's called um, Black Mothers Interrupted, and I believe that babies should go home in their mother's arms. Babies should not go home with other people. I think their mothers should be carrying them home, and so I'm doing everything in my power to 
help educate professionals about um, bias and um, they can get in touch with me through www.transitionswomenshealth.net and uh, read a little bit more about that. Um, I'm gonna have a webinar coming up soon. I haven't chosen a date yet, but I will have it on my website. And um, if anyone goes to my website, they can just sign up to my contact list. And when I'm doing it, I will make sure that I send out an um, email or you know, contact them to let them know that the webinar is coming up. Awesome. Well, that is amazing. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. J, for all the work you're doing in the world and trying to really close that gap um, on maternal um, health care disparities. Uh, so thank you so much. And we'll have to bring you back sometime. Okay. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. Between episodes, you can follow the Nurse Wellness Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Before you go, I would love to share a free mindfulness ebook with you. Go to stressblueprint.com backslash 35 and download your free copy. Until next time, go out and be your best, do your best, and give your best.